Hello everyone and welcome once again to Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. In the first segment this week, senior editor Nick DeSena chats with me about Ducati's new Diavel V4. As the name implies, the savage engine from the new MotoGP World Champions slots nicely into the Diavel chassis. The big question, of course, is whether this is too much motor for this style of bike. Hey, don't forget, we're still running our Cortec Light Gloves giveaway. Simply go to the Ultimate Motorcycling Instagram or Facebook pages and find the Cortec Gloves post. All you have to do is like the post and two winners will be selected at random each week. We will message you if you're one of the lucky winners. Please note, this is only open to residents of the USA. In our second segment this week, I chat with Ryan Smith of Carbon Smith. Ryan is on the cutting edge of the 3D printing business, and as he personally races a motorcycle in the Moto America Twins Cup series, he has the perfect test bed for all things carbon that he manufactures. It's a fascinating business, and as well as his off-the-shelf carbon parts, if you want something more specialized, Ryan is likely the guy that can make it for you as well. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. So it's the new Ducati Diavel V4. Uh, updated pretty much all new. There's only a few kind of you know, lesser bits that have been carried over from the previous model, but for all intents and purposes, it is a brand new Diavel. And that starts with its moniker that you guys may have picked up on, the V4. So it features the, well, it features two extra cylinders now. We've, it's graduated from its V-twin roots or L-twin roots, um, you know, whatever you, you prefer. And, um, you know, it is a it is a big departure from that bike in many, many ways, uh, not necessarily in terms of horsepower or anything like that. But what really shines through is just a new level of refinement, which I think the V4 powered motorcycles from Ducati gained with that that uh, that update. So that's what we're going to be getting into. So they're using the V4 engine. Is it? Um, it's going to be in a different state of tune, I assume, to some of the other models. Yes, it's the, to be more specific, it's the uh, 1158 Gran Turismo V4. So it's the the same engine that comes out of the, the Multistrada V4 range. And the significant difference between that and what you find in the Panigale uh, motorcycles, so the Superbikes or the Street Fighter V4 Superbikes, is the fact that in the Gran Turismo uh, configuration. It uses a conventional valve train instead of a desmodromic valve train. And what that does is it allows a much, much, much higher valve service interval to what is an industry leading 37,000 mile service interval. And that's, it's huge when you compare to, um, you know, prior generation Ducatis. I mean, I can think about, uh, you know, this, a 749 that I owned and valve service intervals were, I think, 6,000 miles. So pretty huge improvement. Granted, that 749 was a 06, so we're, we're, we're digging deep on that one a little bit. But um, you, you get the concept. There's been massive improvements. Now, specifically uh, for the Diavel, there's been a handful of changes. As you guys can imagine, it features a model-specific airbox and routing because it's in an entirely different package. Um, it also features a model-specific camshaft and uh, timing, as well as a, a shorter ratioed uh, first gear. Interesting. Um, and really, that's just going after uh, much more punch off the line, which is a little bit more fitting for the, the sort of brutish nature of the Diavel. Um, that said, the the V4 does a lot of things that the V-twin Diavels and just to speak plainly, the V-twins couldn't do. Um, it's a it's an engine that really gives you the the best of all worlds uh, to sort of butcher a phrase. You can ride this engine like your casual cruiser. You can plonk it into a taller gear 
and really rely on that 93 foot-pounds of torque, which has gone down a couple of points if you compare it to the, the twin-cylinder uh, engine for, as before. But horsepower is up to 168, and that's gone up, I believe, seven points or something like that. Um, you know, that said, we're still dealing with some pretty gnarly figures. And that torque, it comes online super early and just really doesn't quit. So you plonk it into a low gear um, or, you know, a taller gear and say you're cruising along at, you know, 3,500 RPM, just a totally casual urban pace. You can just roll the throttle on and it doesn't lug or kind of become lopey like a V-twin v would at, at uh, low RPM, which is pretty pretty common on especially the larger displacement v-twin engines just really doesn't do that the v4 is just far more refined in that that regard then of course you have the big mid-range uh that's that's feature on this engine i mean it just really just doesn't quit it's the definition of broad mid-range power and what that does for the average rider is again allows them to just kind of settle into a gear and just work the throttle so whether you're you know, just cruising around town or in the canyons, you know, having some fun. That's something that that definitely speaks to riders that may be graduating from a different type of motorcycle, something that may be a little bit less performance oriented, for example, and they're able to sort of become accustomed to the, the amount of power that we have on tap. And then it's also advantageous for riders that are a lot more experienced and know how to get the most out of that engine. Um, so it, it really speaks to both sides of the of the fence on that one. Then, of course, the last bit is you have top end power that is indicative of its super bike and super naked roots. It really feels, you know, like you're not too too many shades off from riding a Panigale when you open the thing up. And um, that's a that's an experience that's sort of accentuated by the the, we'll say, more standard riding position that the Diavol has featured traditionally. I want to characterize it as a cruiser riding position because you're not truly sat on your tailbone and your your legs aren't taken out of the equation, you know, with uh, forward controls. This has mid controls, but it's a very interesting feeling and one that's almost unique to this motorcycle in the sense that you're sat up in a pretty casual riding position and then you can just light off like a rocket, you know, and experience basically super bike top end power um, for the road. So it's it's pretty incredible, um, you know. So that that's kind of the engine in a nutshell. And of course, you know, you have the up down quick shifter um, works very effectively, and you know, several different ride modes uh, which are updated for uh, for this model specifically. It's going to be sport, touring, urban, and wet. Urban and wet are kind of self-explanatory. Those are the the more subdued power modes, uh, obviously more uh, relaxed throttle response, whereas sport and touring are kind of within earshot of each other. They just really adjust your, your overall electronics settings. So your cornering ABS, lean angle sensor tractional, wheelie control, and things of that nature. Um, and of course, because this thing is a you know, fat, tired, gnarly looking motorcycle. It's got to have cruise control or launch control. It does have cruise control as well, just, you know, because. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I just left it in sport mode and, you know, had a grand old time ripping around canyons and chasing down sport bikes and and uh, really confusing them when you take up a huge portion of the rear view mirror. So <laughs> yeah, the Diavol is a, it is an interesting bike in that in that regard you know it's it, it it's it's a fun thing yeah how's the throttle connection on it because you know with with such an emphasis on you know mid-range torque and, and what have you does it and so much horsepower does it ever feel snatchy or a bit a bit jerky or anything or is it really smooth and and, and got a great connection no it's got a great throttle response you know even in the most aggressive mode of sport the the thing is ducati is i would say one of the leaders if not the leader in terms of electronics and that does cascade down into their throttle response it's quite rare that we'll jump on a newer ducati and experience you know any major issues 
uh, with the, the throttle response, whether you are at low RPM, you know, middle of the range or, or high RPM. Uh, so that's that's something that they've really put an emphasis on in the past handful of years, and it's shining through on essentially all of the models up to date. Um, I think the last sort of minor complaint I had about some Ducati electronics was on the Multistrada V4 Pikes Peak, where the quick shifter just didn't feel as smooth as it could have. And even by that standard, it was better than a lot of quick shifters that we use. So um, yeah, when you're dealing with this type of horsepower, you need you need a, a, a throttle response that isn't going to upset the chassis because it's too snatchy and it's going to give direct feedback to the rider to let you know what it's doing so you can maintain control. And that's never an issue here. Okay. Uh, well, moving, moving right along, um, the, the suspension, how is, how does that handle things? You know, this is another little piece of the puzzle that they've improved upon when you compare it to things like the X Diavel or just prior gen Diavels in general. Um, this, you know, it does feature a new chassis and it has lost a significant about amount of weight and, and they were pretty specific in citing it was a dry weight, so without fuel. But if you go back to the 1260 uh, V-Twin Diavel, uh, the current Diavel V4 is now 29 pounds lighter. And that's, you know, the culmination of a, a handful of different things. So the chassis itself, its latest monocoque chassis is 10.4 pounds lighter, or said to be from Ducati engineers. Uh, the engine is about 11 pounds lighter. The wheels are about two pounds lighter. And then there's some bits and bobs here that, uh, you know, shave off some weight. So um, we're still dealing with, you know, when you really want to get to the nitty gritty of it, I think we call the Diavel a cruiser, just lack for a better term. But at the end of the day, it's not a cruiser. It's not a power cruiser. I think those labels are unbecoming of what the Diavel can do and what it will do in this current iteration, even more so. So you deal, you're, you're dealing with cruiser geometry, and that's to say it has a pretty lengthy rake, it has a very long wheelbase, and it also has that massive 240 rear tire, which is kind of a diavel thing. The reality is, the thing handles really well. And to kind of, you know, emphasize how good it is. If I were to ride something like a monster or any other conventionally sporty bike in the canyons, really don't think the Diavel V4 rider would be far off, if off at all, a conventionally sporty motorcycle. The fact is Ducati made a, you know, sporty, sporty cruiser, quote unquote, and uh, left out all the negative spots that a lot of sport bike guys point at cruisers for having. It's not, it's an Italian cruiser. And in that sense, it's essentially just a low slung sport bike. So, you know, that's kind of what you're getting. Um, you know, there are some limitations in the sense that its form factor does adhere to that burly kind of bulldoggy, um, low slung, you know, aesthetic and because of that the the pegs are a bit closer to the ground than your average sport bike and so you will customize the peg feelers quite a bit but i wouldn't say that's necessarily going to slow you down any um and with the suspension in particular we're running conventional marzocchi suspension fully adjustable at both ends it's got a you know really chunky 50 millimeter fork on it which if you look at the bike overall I'm not sure if that was both an engineering choice as well as an aesthetic choice, because if they put, they put like a wimpier size fork on there, I feel like it would just look really strange, but, uh, you know, uh, that's, you know, a story for another day. O overall, the suspension works, you know, pretty good. Um, well, not pretty good. works good. You know, the, the ride quality is nice. It, you know, doesn't translate a lot of road abuse into the rider. It's, you know, him or her. And, you know, overall, it works nicely. And I think that is a step forward when we, you know, compare it to things like the XD Oval, which was known to have a, a shock that was a bit stiff in terms of its damping. So you could translate a lot of that, uh, you know, a lot of the road imperfections to the rider. And then previous iterations of the Diavel, 
not to the same degree as the XD oval, but, you know, uh, not as smooth as what we're dealing with here. And, you know, granted that this bike came out in, or the Diavel name was was coined in, I think it was model year 2011. Um, you know, it's good to see that they're always inching their way forward in that regard. But the fact is, you look at the Diavel and from an aesthetic perspective, you might think, not sure how this is going to handle, but every time the Diavel proves you wrong, it says, no, 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 allora, we are going to do this, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's just kind of, kind of crazy, man. I, I don't know what, what sort of blood pacts they've made with the Diavel. Um, but, uh, they, they get it to work very well. You know, that said, uh, one of the things that I, I did feel was not necessarily missing, but, um, typically Ducati does an S model, uh, you know, the S badge models usually are up spec models, not usually they are. And so as this is just the Diavel V4, much like Prince, it is just Prince. Um, it is just the Diavel V4. That's it. Nothing else. Um, you know, it leaves the door open for semi-active suspension to come into the mix. And I think it would be beneficial for this bike, not necessarily because it needs it in any particular manner, but the Diavel to me is about embracing everything that's over the top about cruisers and power cruisers and just V-twin aesthetics in general. And I think technology is a part of that. So it would be cool to see semi-active suspension come into the mix at some point. Yeah, I would expect to see it. I was, uh, it, it seems like a sort of a natural progression, um, but it sounds as though it works pretty well on its own. Um, yes, it does. In terms of in terms of other componentry, it, it looks like it's got some pretty beefy Brembos on there. Um, yeah, how, yeah. How the brakes? I mean, it's a fairly heavy bike, so so uh, do the brakes suffer at all? No, no. I mean, the the bike is no lightweight. You know, that's that's one of the few cruisery things that we can sort of say about it. It's five hundred twenty pounds. That's that's not you know grossly heavy. It's not super light either you know and if you were to compare it to an american v-twin for example um those are going to be tipping the scales uh a lot further into the red than what this bike is going to do um that said 520 pounds is nothing to sneeze at and this is kind of where they've sort of nipped that issue in the bud it has bigger rotors than i want to say I need to fact check this for my own curiosity now. I'd say the, definitely bigger than that Jixer 1000. Uh, we'll go halfway on record and say bigger rotors than the Japanese super bikes at the moment. At any rate, it runs 330 millimeter rotors, which are massive and uh, look super cool. Just going to put that out there. Then it also uses stylemic calipers up front. Um, you know, that's some of the best stuff that you can get off the shelf that manufacturers are currently using on their uh, up-spec bikes. And, you know, that's ripped directly from the Panigale and Street Fighter and Pikes Peak and all of their performance models. So, okay, you know you're going to have plenty of stopping power and feel, as you'd expect from the Brembo Radial Master Cylinder, quite good as well. Sort of a little bit unsurprising to us that, you know, top spec Brembo stuff works nicely. Um, I think the more crucial aspect here is that the the ABS itself works just as well. So more aggressive settings, it can let you push as hard as you possibly want to because it disables the cornering function or it disables the IMU specifically for cornering ABS. TC still retains it, obviously. Um, and you know, it has a track mode for, for all that stuff. So essentially you could take the Diablo to a track day. I don't think anyone would really, really blame you. Um, but <laughs> you know, you could, so there's that. Um, and then it has corner and ABS and, and things of that nature. And, and, you know, um, that's always good to have, but at the end of the day, the brakes work really well and yeah, it's still, you know, a, a fairly heavy motorcycle, but if you compare it to a conventional cruiser, 
you know, not so much. That said, this thing's not a cruiser. I, I struggle to call it a cruiser in earnest because it's just not, it never has been, never will be. And I don't want it to be. So there's that. <laughs> it's very different experience. It's definitely defined its own class, I would say. Um, it's a sort of it's sort of cruiser esque. It's got some cruiser nods, but uh, it's not a cruiser. But uh, how how does it compare to say a Street Fighter or a Monster or what have you in terms of in terms of the ride? You know, is is it a lot more solid feeling? Is it much slower handling, or it's got to be a fair bit, I would think. Yeah, obviously there are going to be differences if you compare it to a a conventionally sporty motorcycle um you know the street fighter v4 being a an extremely sporty motorcycle um in that kind of the pinnacle of the super naked class the monster being you know a a sporty naked bike but a little bit more um we'll say uh, middle of the road in terms of its its sport intentions it speaks to a much larger audience and uh I would say is a little bit more livable than than your average hyper focused super naked motorcycle. Uh, that said, the Street Fighter V4 is disturbingly comfortable, almost too comfortable for a bike of that performance level. So I feel like they should make it more uncomfortable just because. Um, <laughs> but that said, yeah, obviously, if you were to compare a Diavel to a Monster or a Street Fighter, the main things that are going to jump out is you're not going to have the same amount of ground clearance and it's probably not going to be able to get on the edge of the tire as aptly or as eagerly as any of those other motorcycles um but because it is running the v4 one of the main things that it does have an advantage of is the fact that it uses the counter-rotating crankshaft uh you know which is a trickle down from ducati's moto gp efforts uh, so that that counters the uh, gyroscopic rotation of the, the wheels and really helps it get on get on the edge of the tire and handle quite well so it's extremely planted once you're you know flicked over and the way it transitions is is quite good as well um but if you're thinking oh well it's just a a squatty version of the street fighter v4 no that it, it physically can't be it's just not the same thing you're you're not doing apples to apples comparison that's just not fair um that said, we should touch on the the riding position of it because that that is a crucial thing uh, for this motorcycle. Yeah, I mean, ergonomically, it looks like it's pretty comfortable. It's got a little bit of aggression to it. So, like you say, if, if you know if you tend to wick it up a bit, I'm sure you can hang on, no problem. Yeah, there's just a hint of you know forward cantedness towards the front end um, that really just helps with giving you good front end feedback and things of that nature, but it never takes anything in too far of a particular direction. It's kind of interesting because if you were to compare this bike in terms of its riding position, position, uh, I would say think Scrambler 1100. It's a very casual, neutral riding position. It's not as aggressive as a Tree Fighter V4, a monster or, you know, anything of that ilk. And it's not as relaxed as a, straight up and down cruiser. So because it has mid controls, you're able to distribute your weight through your legs and engage your core. So when you are riding more aggressively, that allows one, to keep weight off your tailbone and two, have a much better connection with the chassis and the motorcycle overall, which is something that you can't necessarily say to a lot of um, you know, more traditional cruisers, which may have forward controls or just riding positions that are much uh, much more kicked back and relaxed. And so that weight distribution just is much, much, much different. Um, you know, despite the fact that the Diavel is an incredibly aggressive looking motorcycle, super masculine, it sits like, you know, kind of a Scrambler or a, or a Bonneville even. I mean, it's just your kind of average standard quote unquote riding position. And that's what for me is one of the defining characteristics and what makes this bike quite livable you know despite its more extreme appearance its horsepower its handling abilities you know it's these lists just this laundry list of performance attributes 
and at the end of the day, it, it is a pretty livable bike in terms of just your, your average touch points, we'll say. Um, so yeah, that, that's a very, a very important thing to, to hit on right there. Um, yeah. And aesthetically, you know, they've done a really, really interesting job with the 23 model. Um, you know, the taillight is this honeycomb led taillight, you know, sort of, uh, you know, what, what immediately kind of coined once they first announced this, this bike, you know, I think maybe even Ducati mentions this in their literature, but I think they, they call it a four barrel exhaust tip, but it really reminds me of something that Arnold Schwarzenegger would have carried. Yeah. At some point. Yeah. And yeah, again, that, it looks really cool. It's, it's one of those things where you're like, takes a very particular bike to pull that off because it definitely goes into the cheese factor but right some bikes can do it i think if um i were to see this on a i don't know if i saw this on a on a low rider s i would have a resounding no in response to that it's just not <laughs> gonna fit but on something like the diavel it somehow works yeah, um, you know, so it, it is it is pretty interesting, and you know, to to kind of wrap it up on the on the aesthetic stuff, the seat itself is like super wide. You have this tail section with the fold away um, uh, passenger pegs to just kind of clean up that look. It's actually a very very interesting motorcycle in that regard to just kind of check out, and the single sided swing arm with with the the machined wheel uh, at the rear end. It's that, that that is a nice looking wheel. It's kind of a strange thing to hear myself saying, but uh, looks pretty awesome when it's all said and done. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the the uh, the Diavel in a nutshell. Um, you know, are there gripes that I have about it? Well, it gets a bit bit spicy if you're riding around in hot weather and or traffic. And one of the things that they have done to address it is roll out a new heat management strategy, uh, what they, which they have dubbed extended rear cylinder deactivation. And so with the V4 engine um, on a handful of different Ducati models, they've instituted rear cylinder deactivation, which basically means when the bike comes to a stop and it's, in, and it's idling, the rear cylinder bank will turn off. Now, a lot of different bikes do this. Um, you'll see this on big baggers and, you know, things like that. And, um, Think it's a it's a good feature however the this iteration of the v4 is taking that a step further what they're doing is shutting down the rear cylinder bank when the bike is not only at idle but also when it's operating below um 4, rpm and between uh gears two through six so you're not likely to ride around with the rear cylinder banks deactivated but if you're kind of plotting along at some really low speed traffic or something like that, then maybe. Um, that said, the transition from having that rear brank active to uh, deactivated, it's almost imperceptible in the terms of the feel. You can't really feel it kick in. It's just, it's extremely subtle. There's no kind of driveline lash or, you know, anything like that. That you'd feel through the, the seat or the engine or or the that you know some sort of throttle response issue. The only thing that really gives it away is you can hear the exhaust note change. So it just kind of feels a little bit more full. Uh, anyone that's driven you know a hybrid car or you know a modern truck, or I think cars have this feature too, but definitely a lot of modern modern trucks. Um, where you know the v8s go down to v4s or something like that um when you're on the freeway basically just for fuel economy at that point um similar thing except you can actually feel when the cylinders kick back in on that it's not like bad but you sort of perceptible in this case it's not really it's insanely smooth which is really curious but um yeah you know the the diavel is just kind of one of those bikes that's carved out its own niche and when you talk about competitors and things like that it's really tough because right now you know people used to mention the v-max and bikes of that ilk but the v-max was never if we're honest it was never truly 
up to snuff with the Diavol. And now you have the Triumph Rocket 3, uh, which is, I would say it's closest competitor, but in terms of riding experience, they're on different ends of the spectrum completely. They are doing their own thing. Uh, they just happen to be lumped into the same conversation. Um, I, I I think the, the thing is, if you were to actually get face-to-face -face with any of those bikes, you'll realize that they're speaking completely different languages. So, you know, before shooting that story in the foot, um, they do things quite differently, we'll say. But uh, yeah, you know, the, the Diavo was a fun bike to ride and it definitely does something different, not just within the Ducati spectrum, but the market overall. So yeah, yeah, that's where we're at with the uh, 2023 Ducati Diavo V4. All right. Thank you. Um, interesting bike. Um, I, I like the look of it. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate the insight as always. Yeah, of course. Hey, don't forget, we're still running our Cortec light gloves giveaway. Simply go to the Ultimate Motorcycling Instagram or Facebook pages and find the Cortec gloves post. All you have to do is like the post and two winners will be selected at random each week. We will message you if you're one of the lucky winners. Please note, this is only open to residents of the USA. In our second segment this week, I chat with Ryan Smith of Carbon Smith. Ryan is on the cutting edge of the 3D printing business, and as he personally races a motorcycle in the Moto America Twins Cup series, he has the perfect testbed for all things carbon that he manufactures. It's a fascinating business, and as well as his off-the-shelf carbon parts, if you want something more specialized, Ryan is likely the guy that can make it for you as well. My dad had a friend um, who had, he had a Honda, it was like a VFR 1100 or something like that, and um, this was back in the 90s, and he used to come over to visit my dad on his motorcycle, and I would get a static about it you know i was maybe i don't know i was maybe like five or six or you know in that in that range and um you know my dad was never a motorcycle guy he was a car guy he he always loved um corvettes that was kind of his thing and you know he loved working on cars and showing me how to work on cars so i always had an interest in you know kind of all things motorsports um but my dad's friend would come over with this motorcycle and he would take me for rides. Um, at the time, my dad lived kind of at the top of a mountain and all the roads were real windy and twisty. And he would throw me on the back and I'd throw a helmet on that was 10 sizes too big, you know, whatever. And and <laughs> I, I couldn't see, you know, I'm looking right in his back. I couldn't really see anything, but um, he would just you know, rip up and down these, these mountain roads with me hanging on for dear life on the back. And I loved it, you know? And so I always begged my dad for a bike and it was some, never something that kind of came into fruition uh, until one day my dad's friend came over um, and he brought a little trail 50 motorcycle for me to ride. And, um, you know, it was kind of like a surprise. I don't even think my dad knew um, that it was going to happen. You know, I think he just kind of showed up and was like, hey, look what I got. You know, let's let's let Ryan run, ride it around in the backyard. And <clears throat> so I started riding that thing around the backyard and, and doing laps and doing laps and doing laps and, and just fell in love with it. And um, actually, eventually, uh, I, I crashed it and uh we lived right now. we lived kind of like in a wooded plot so we had a, a cleared area for a backyard and then um i thought oh i'm gonna go down here and and maybe go through the woods or whatever and i went down to the bottom of the yard and as soon as i got to the bottom of the yard there was a fallen down tree and um you know it was bigger than the motorcycle and so i hit it head on and flipped over the front of the motorcycle and Man, I tell you what, I did a number on myself when I did that. Um, it was it was really really bad. Um, it was oh, so wow. bad. It was it was so bad that um, basically they they thought at one point I could possibly die. Like I was I what happened is 
the bike had landed on my head and cut my head open really bad. And um, I started losing uh, just a ton of blood. And so um, kind of save you all the gory details. I got rushed to the hospital and um, ended up with a ton of staples and stitches in my head and um, kind of ruined the whole motorcycle experience, you know, right the day that it, it started. How old were you at that point? I mean, you sound like you were pretty young. Yeah, I think I was eight. Okay, yeah, that's that is very young. Wow, wow. So, um, you know, and and I was I was an active athlete. I played football and baseball and basketball and soccer, and um, you know, I was I was active in in many different things. I was in the Boy Scouts, and um, so kind of when this happened, like everything in my life just came to a screeching halt. I I spent a few weeks in the hospital before they let me out. Um, and then, you know, had months of recovery um, associated with with the head injury and, and the other injuries that I sustained um, from the accident. But um, that's how I got into motorcycles, really. And my mom, after that, was like, nope, no more motorcycles. You know, you're, <laughs> you're never going to ride a motorcycle as long as, you, you know, you live under my roof. And so motorcycles kind of took a a break from my life until I was uh, an adult. And um, once I was an adult, once I turned 18, that was kind of the, one of the first things I did was was go out and, and buy a motorcycle, you know, as soon as I could afford it. Okay, so so then you you started off at some point on the path to racing. So that must, that must have made your mom even more more excited, I should think, wasn't it? Yeah, well, you know, in my later years of high school, I decided that I really wanted to be involved in, in motorsports and, um, yeah, I was really into all things racing, um, car racing, you know, motorcycle racing. And, um, I decided, well, I, I found out that there was, uh, an actual discipline in engineering called motorsports engineering, um, that you can study and get a degree for. Um, here in the States. And um, that was kind of became my focus in my senior year in, in college or in high school. And so I applied to different colleges that had that program and got accepted into one at um, the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And um, from there on out, like that was kind of, you know, that was going to be my life was, um, you know, go to school, get an engineering degree, get a concentration in motorsports, you know, and hopefully find a, a job on a, a like a NASCAR team or some kind of race team um, being that I was in Charlotte um, that was going to be for me like the perfect location because that's kind of like the epicenter of racing in the United States um, is you know that whole Charlotte Mooresville kind of area <clears throat> so um, so yeah so my mom was kind of like you know she was on board with it only because I was turning it into what I thought was going to be, you know, um, a career and a career path. Um, he also liked the fact that um, if I was doing something on a racetrack, that meant I wasn't doing it on the street or on a highway. Um, so typically that was going to be less consequential, um, you know, so. So she she eventually got on board with it. Now she's my biggest fan, you know. Um, it's funny, I tell people, that I'm like, oh yeah, I can hear my mom in the stands, like over my motorcycle, screaming for me as I'm you know, going going through whatever turn she's she's sitting and watching in, um, just because I know that she's in the stands, just screaming as loud as she can, you know, for me to to you know go. So, oh, that's all. That's awesome. So, what series do you uh, do you race in? Um. So right now, I finished racing a few races in the Moto America Twins Cup series. Oh, um, nice. Very competitive. Yeah, yeah very competitive. Um, a bit too competitive for, uh, <laughs> for me. I, I did okay in the races um, that, that, I, that I showed up for uh, and that I could compete for um, or compete in. But yes, extremely competitive class. Um, a class that I've been involved with since its origin in 2018. Um, when the class first opened up, I actually worked with Jason Madama, um, who was a participant in 2018 and who came in second place. We were the runner up in the championship that year. And so 
um when it started you know it was um it was a class that had six people signed up for it you know i think the first year i think maybe the biggest grids that we had may have been 15 riders you know um it wasn't a class that was popular at all and um <clears throat> for us it was awesome we we loved it you know we loved showing up and and being able to to podium at a track that we had never been to before as a as a team that was new in a series that you know we had no experience in um obviously now you can't show up and have the same expectations when <laughs> you know 30 yeah. to 40 people um signed up for the class now but just goes to show the the due diligence and the process that Moto America does to to prove their series and um, you know to grow the sport in general. Um, so yeah, I transitioned from kind of like a mechanic, you know, slash crew chief into um, more of a, a rider myself. Right. What what bike do you campaign in in the series? Uh, currently, I'm on the Aprilia RS six six sixty. That's kind of the bike to be on. I, you know, it's between that and the R7s, isn't it, really? Yeah, now that the R7 is out, um, you know, it's definitely got a lot more competitive um, with the improvements with the frame and the chassis and everything. Um, sure. But a couple of years ago or 2020, when I was making my decision to go from club racing to, to professional Moto America racing, I knew that that's the class I wanted to be in. Um, and I knew that when the Aprilia came out, when it was announced that that was going to be the most competitive choice for me, um, right. being that I'm not as a competitive rider, being that I'm old and, and outdated and uh, <laughs> quite, quite, a, quite a large human for motorcycle racing uh, comparative to, you know, the people I'm out there against, but um, it's been an, it's been an awesome bike to work on um, develop and and be able to participate in moto america with right well that sort of leads me into sort of segues nicely into the second part of the conversation which is really your business which is how we found you um carbon smith what, what exactly do you do at carbon smith i do uh, personally i do everything uh i you know, <laughs> well, of course yeah <laughs> yeah and um, I think now I'm in my fifth year of, of owning Carbon Smith and, and having a brand. Um, the popularity of it's become a lot larger. And I think people think it's a lot bigger than it is, but I, I do everything. Um, there is no other employee. There's no other help. Um, there's no other face behind Carbon Smith other than myself. So uh, anything that you see that is, you know, related to Carbon Smith comes directly from me. So I do all the design work. Um, all the prototyping, um, all the printing, all the production, packaging, shipping, you know, email support, um, dyno development, everything. So Carbon Smith in general <clears throat> um, started as a 3D printing company that specialized in carbon fiber 3D printing. And um, now it's evolved into a full-fledged carbon fiber business alongside of carbon fiber 3D printing. I see. So, so it is, it is carbon fiber, three B, three D printing, but it's also more than that as well. So you're laying, laying carbon fiber and, and, and creating parts, not just printing them. Yeah. When I, when I started carbon Smith, my motto or my, my slogan is everything carbon. And okay. um, my last name is Smith. And so since I make things out of carbon, carbon Smith was the appropriate name. Uh, really perfect isn't it <laughs> right? so, exactly yeah. so um you know if you're making things out of carbon you have to make everything out of carbon and so um everybody associates 3d printing with you know being able to make anything um and so um the specific printing technology that i use um uses real carbon fiber um thread that's laid into the print and cut with an actual um, pair of shears that's built into the print head and so it builds a part with internal um, integrity that's using real carbon fiber. And so um, there's only one that I know of, there's only one current company that makes this type of, of printing technology. Um, there's a lot of carbon fiber 3D printing out there, but it's not continuous fiber inside of the part, it's chopped fiber. Um, 
So it would be like, um, you know, like instead of having um, like a piece of fettuccine, right, or a piece of um, lasagna, you know, you've got spaghetti or you've got um, elbow macaroni, you've got tiny little particles of, of carbon fiber versus big long strands of carbon. That's got to massively affect the structural integrity of the pieces because it's like, you know, running rebar through concrete. If you just simply chopped up rebar into six inch six inch lengths and then sprinkled them through the concrete, it's not going to not not going to have anywhere near the same effect. That's exactly right. Okay, so that that's that's fascinating. I guess to sort of go back to the beginning of it, what actually drew you to three D printing and 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 getting involved? I mean, obviously you had the engineering degree with the focus on motorsports and it's not difficult to see how you might be led into that, but that's quite a jump really. Yeah. Um, you know, to be frank, I was watching TV one day and um, <laughs> <laughs> there was a show that, that came on. Um, it was called blue collar backers. And have you heard of shark tank? Of course. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Right. So shark tank is right. You got, business people in suits handing out millions of dollars people come on and pitch their stuff right blue collar backers was a spinoff i believe from the discovery channel that was like shark tank but instead of white collar businessmen you had blue collar farmers and ranch hands and um people who developed large amounts of wealth getting their hands dirty um and and people on this show went with alternative ideas that you wouldn't take onto Shark Tank necessarily um, to a blue collar backer, quote unquote, and got funding um, through a blue collar backer. So there was a company that came out with a, a rear mounted turbocharging system, um, mainly for cars. And instead of a traditional turbo is mounted near the engine, um, these turbos were mounted near the taillights and um, it, it, right, it used exhaust near the exhaust pipe and then it plumbed the, the charge up underneath the car back up to the engine. And um, there were some advantages and some disadvantages to this. And, and this company ended up going out of, they got really big and really popular. They ended up going out of business. The guy came back onto the show um, to reinvent the same idea, but to do it with motorcycles. And the the blue collar backer on the show um, who took this idea um, brought these 3D printers into the show and were like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna ramp up production by 3D printing our own carbon fiber parts. And at the time, the technology was only about a year old. They were brand new to the market. And um, I was like, wait a second, ding, ding, ding. I'm like, an idea. I was like, wait a second, you can actually, now you can really 3D print with continuous carbon fiber. And so um, I started doing my homework on it and doing my research on the company that made the printers and, and the technology and um, the durability of the, the materials that they used and so on and so forth. And um, eventually I put pen to paper and, and got all my ideas from my business plan written down and, and secured a little bit of capital so that I could get my first printer. Um, Cause they're not cheap printers. Um, oh, no, 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 no. Imagine technology like that is, is comes at a premium. Um, and so uh, got my first printer started making my first parts. Um, and at the time um, I was involved with Moto America and the twins cup program and started making parts and just bringing them to races, putting them in front of race teams, um, showing people how strong you could actually make something out of quote unquote plastic or 3D printed um, you know, material. And um, eventually just the, the ball just kind of snowballed and, and gathered momentum and, and just kept going downhill and downhill. And, here we are five years later and you know i've got months worth of work sitting in front of me and um so <laughs> good problem now. you've got sort of uh multiple machines presumably because then you started branching out into into other types of 3d printing or is it just specifically carbon you know that's specifically type so i have a i have about eight 
machines now, um, but they are all specific to the carbon fiber um, continuous fiber format. Um, you can you can print a few different materials on these machines uh, if you want to, um, but my catalog of parts that I sell um, are very um, they're very specific to their environment, right? The velocity stacks, um, a lot of which are exposed to different types of fuels, um, you know, pressures, nitrous temperatures, stuff like that, and so. The biggest advantage of these printers, aside from the technology, is the materials and um, the material capability, um, which is proprietary to the machines that I'm using. So I can't just, you know, go on Amazon and, and buy spools of, of carbon fiber for my printer and, and get it delivered by Jeff Bezos next day. Like it's it's very proprietary stuff. And so it's also expensive. And and that is truly the secret to the secret sauce to the the carbon fiber 3D printing is the quality of the materials. Um, right. Okay. Their heat resistance, their chemical resistance. Um, you know, there's a lot of sorry. Um, there's a lot of properties that come along with the proprietary material that that really enhance the product and make it so successful. Um, so no, I don't do other types of 3D printing. Um, the the printers that I have stay busy enough that I don't want to I don't want to compound onto that right now. So uh, of, of course, long before you actually sort of start printing anything, you've got to convert the parts into your presumably CAD CAM type of, um, you know, engineering vector based 3D design, I assume, and, and that you then feed into the machine that then tells the machine what to do. So presumably you do all of that yourself as well, it sounds like. Yeah, um, kind of another funny little story. Um, so uh, I so we, I call that CAD drawing, uh, computer aided design or, or drafting um there's other acronyms but um i've actually been doing that since i was 10 years old um my dad is a mechanical engineer and he is uh one of if not the world's leading expert in cad design um specifically for um one major program called creo now it's called creo um but it's it's one of the it's really one of the most sophisticated CAD programs on the market um, and has been for for over 30 years. And um, the company PTC that makes this software, um, they don't they don't write textbooks on on how to do CAD drawings. Right. You spend a lot of money on their software and you have to have a, a solid education uh, to know how to do it. Well, it just so happens that my dad writes the textbook for the CAD program uh, and sells them to colleges all across the world. And so um, my dad, when I was 10 years old, started teaching me how to draw uh, my Lego models in CAD. And um, at the time it was called Pro Engineer. And so basically I would get a Lego toy, you know, as a present, and before I would get the Lego pieces, I would get the instructions and um, I would get, you know, single pieces and I would have to draw every piece and put the model together on the computer and finish my Lego on the computer before I would get the entire kit to put the Lego together and to build it. And so uh, that was, you know, that was another reason why a guy was really interested in, in engineering, um, just because when I was a kid, you know, in 1995, computers were, it was like, you know, robots, you know, it was like the, nobody knew what was going to happen with computers in, in at that time. And so for me, it was the coolest thing in the world to go to my dad's house because he had a computer and I got to play with it. And I got to, you know, what I knew at the time was just playing a game. But now it's like, no, you were running a really highly advanced CAD software that, um, you know, over over time, over the course of your life is going to really pay off for you. So um so yeah, in college, I used my dad's textbook. Um, we learned how to use Creo in, in my mechanical engineering curriculum, and, and my college actually used my dad's textbook, which 
by that time I had already gone through my dad's textbooks, you know, six times. So I was pretty proficient in CAD drawing in college and still am. Um, That's interesting. Uh, it, it's funny. I mean, I'm not entirely surprised to hear it. Um, by coincidence, one of my very best friends um, is uh, owns a high-end uh, web development company, com company called SmartWorks Solutions, and he handles all of uh, PTC's um, websites. Oh, and, cool! And actually, at, at times, we've helped them out with with uh, with content. So, although I am not familiar with Creo, of course, I I I have heard of it and uh, and have, have witnessed some of it. So it's quite interesting. I would have thought you would have you were going to say something like SolidWorks or you know one of the other CAD CAM programs, but Creo is like you say is at a different level than everything else. I mean, that's really top level stuff. That that's very impressive, Ryan, because you're you're using clearly top top level stuff. Um, I, I know a little bit about 3D printing. One of, Again, one of my best friends, um, he was CEO of a company called uh, Concept Laser. Um, and they were actually the first company to start 3D printing production parts. In other words, they went from 3D rapid prototyping to actual production parts. So his customers are among, you know, the Ducati MotoGP team and the Ferrari F1 team and um spacex and what have you and they're they're printing real parts um in fact airbus industries has i think the a380 has lots and lots of printed parts on it go straight from the printer direct onto the plane yeah and you know the additive manufacturing industry um aka 3d printing i mean it's it it is the future of of our manufacturing industry um it is without a doubt yeah you know, if you look it's it's funny because if you look back as to you know like machining and and most processes are subtractive manufacturing and we create so much waste and so much energy just to have waste um you know to switch over to additive manufacturing um just in the the you know the reduction in the waste um the ability to create complex geometries um you know with much yeah less expensive technology so to speak um the next you know really the 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 next step in it is just materials is just how many different materials can we learn to you know add together how how can we you know solidify you know this to to itself and and path that into, into a part so of the parts that you manufacture you're also developing things as well Again, one of my friends is is working with you on, uh, you know, sort of a, an idea from variable velocity stacks on, you know, as per motorcycles onto uh, uh, something that sort of mimics that. So you're actually developing race parts yourself, or at least sort of motorcycle parts by the sound of it. Yeah, yeah, that's the goal is to develop and design new new parts that are performance based that you know, improve the performance of, you know, whatever motorsport discipline um, you're involved with. Um, my goal is to be a tool in your toolbox to help you, you know, advance whatever program you're in. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have access to resources um, that allow me to develop parts like having a dyno, um, you know, and having um, CFD simulation software, um, having like a 3D scanner and obviously having 3D printers um, to be able to not just make production parts at a high level, but I can also make, um, you know, prototype parts, fitment type parts, you know, stuff that you need when you're prototyping and developing um, a new performance part. That's terrific. Is there, is there any part in your catalog that you're sort of particularly proud of that, that if somebody said, you know, Ryan, give me an example of what you do. Is there something that you'd hold over your hand and start waving at me and going, yeah, this is the bit? Um, you know, I'm I'm really proud of everything that I do. Um, I think my most unique part that I've designed and developed um, is my dimpled velocity stacks, um, which I make for a couple different bikes. Um, they don't work on every bike. Um, there's a, a specific reason why they work on some bikes and not others, but um, basically I've taken 
kind of like a, a golf ball surface, um, like an asymmetric dimpling pattern and, and applied that to the surface of my velocity stacks. And um, in some cases on some motorcycles uh, with the right application, um, it creates a really nice boundary layer um, around the stack and allows fuel to go down into the, the, the throttle bodies much better than a, a smooth type of stack. Um, and so um, we've seen quite a bit of, of good results, test results from that. And it turns out to be my most popular part now. Um, and that's probably what I'm most proud of. Um, it's also what I'm most criticized for, um, you know, at, at the same time. So, um, but they, you know, they say if, if, if people are talking trash, then you must be doing something right, you know, so. Oh, for sure. For sure. That's very impressive. I mean, you're right on the cutting edge here. I mean, the bleeding edge of technology. Do you, do you ever feel that, you know, things are progressing so rapidly that you're not going to be able to keep up or, or are you sort of, are you pushing the bounds, the boundaries of what you're doing? Um, I mean, I feel like, I mean, if you're talking about the top levels of motorsports, MotoGP, you know, Formula One, um, I think we're going to see a little bit of a uh, plateau in, in, I think we've been at a really aggressive rate. Um, and I sure. think we're, we may be at a plateau um, with that. Um, but as far as my specific area, um, I, I like to think I'm part of the pioneering and, and part of it, but, you know, I try to stay really humble, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I encourage competition because I think that drives innovation. And so like, I'm, you know, I love the fact that other people are out there 3D printing, you know, motorcycle parts now. And, you know, I've seen iterations of dimpled parts, you know, dimpled velocity stacks and stuff like that. And, you know, at the time, five years ago, when I started my business, I was crucified for, oh, you can't put a 3D printed part inside your motorcycle and, and use that with this type of fuel and you're going to destroy this and that. And, you know, now it's, like mainstream almost, you know, and it, it, it's specific to a niche bit of parts. A lot of it's geometry based, um, you know, 3d printing solves a lot of problems where machining can't, you know, um, and a lot of that, like I said, is geometry based where I could print something that has a lot of complex geometry that just would be a nightmare to try and program and machine, um, you know, or design a mold for to cast. So yeah, to give you an example, my my friend at one of his customers is SpaceX. And he said, he said, if you think about, you know, a rocket engine, and all the pipes and the and the joints and all the things that are around a rocket engine and the complexity of that thing, every single one of those, those pipe that one of those joints has to have a gasket. Mm -hmm. But if you 3d print the engine from the ground up, there are no joints anywhere. So there's no, yeah. there are no gaskets to burst. So he said, it's a major leap forward in terms of, you know, not just obviously, you know, weight and, and, and speed and all of that, but it's also in terms of reliability. So I'm sure that probably translates. You've probably got parts that, 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 that have a similar kind of idea behind it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the reason why we're going to plateau is, is it's going to be cost prohibitive. Um, Right. You know, there. I think we're, unfortunately, our economy may not be heading in the best direction right now. So <laughs> right. Um, access for the normal folk like me and you, it becomes much more limited. Um, right. You know, if I had a ton of money and a huge uh, warehouse full of tools, um, you know, I could make some pretty incredible stuff. But, um, you know, I'm limited with my own capacities. Um, but you know, printers that are making stuff on rockets are like, you know, cost half as much as the rocket itself, you know? So, um, but, but you're right when it comes to the technology that, you know, there is no other way to do it and, and it's a necessity and, um, it's truly, uh, just an engineering marvel as to what we can create now, um, yeah. you know, with, yeah. with additive manufacturing. And especially with, 
you know, when with aerodynamics, I mean, aerodynamics in motorcycling is only really at the MotoGP level. But again, mm -hmm. if you're dealing with CFD, you know, computational fluid dynamics, if you're looking at those kind of areas on how to make aero more efficient, that again is, is we'll have to see where it goes. But I mean, that's a sort of a controversial topic, but, um, you know, but, uh, but that's got to be pretty fascinating, I should think, with what you're finding out on various surfaces and how you can play around with surfaces to, to help airflow, you know, move quicker or move more efficiently or, or what have you. Yeah. And, um, you know, fluid dynamics was one of my favorite classes in, in school. And, um, you know, it's funny because I did, when I left college, I didn't go straight into motorsports and, um, you know, making parts and racing and stuff. I, I moved to Aspen and decided to be a ski bum um, for a while <laughs> and, and, you know, went as far away from motorsports as I could after, you know, college. I was like, enough of this. I want to go, you know, I want to go enjoy my 20s. And, um, right. but, um, yeah, I, I think now, you know, something that's, that's truly um, interesting, I guess you could say. So anybody who wants to get in touch with Carvin Smith and have a look, um, how, how would they do that? Um, so you can go visit my website, which is uh, carbon-smith.com. And um, I also have social media. Uh, Carbon Smith is on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and those are probably the three best places to, to check out what I have to offer and to get in touch with me. Um, you know, I usually respond to direct messages and stuff like that, emails pretty quickly. So, um, yeah. so yeah. All right. Well, terrific. Um, I wish you luck in your continued racing, but um, I'll also watch uh, the development of Carbon Smith uh, with interest as well. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate your time and, and your, uh, your insight and your innovation, I guess. <laughs> thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Right, take it easy.